The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Our Dharma practice day. <clears throat> Did it make a difference to close the door there? Not that much difference. Those people, probably people by the window, it didn't. <laughs> Not much over there, because it's coming in through the window, I think. But over there, probably better. It's, the, it's that side of the building. The, um, anyway, so welcome to our Dharma practice day. And I don't know how long the sound will go. It's, it looks to me like they're maybe breaking up the cement walkway in the side of the building over there, one, block, one house over. So maybe it'll take a while. Um, so those of you who are new to Dharma practice days, uh, these are days where we explore the Dharma, the practice, in a variety of different ways, so that it's not just sitting in silent meditation or listening to a talk, but engaging in it in a, a direct personal way uh, through, through certainly some meditation, some guided meditation, some teachings, but also oh, you have a chance to have be in discussion with uh, the topic. Because to make something personal and really kind of digest it and integrate it and understand yourself well in relationship to the topic, sometimes it helps a lot to be able to be in conversation with other people about it. And it's rare, I think, in many people's lives to be able to have focused conversations about important values that they have, important topics of the spiritual life, in a sense. And so that's, uh, and in monasteries, traditionally, there's a lot of opportunities for people to talk. The monastics would talk. People there would talk about, you know, do you hear what the abbot said? And what do you think of that? And, and so here, we have a chance to do this together as a community. So it's partly what the today is as well, is uh, practicing in community. Um, and for all the um, joys and challenges of being in community. This, uh, for 2,500 years, in the time of the Buddha, it's, um, the practice has to a big degree been um, mediated through the joys and challenges of being a community. and It's a very important part of the practice. So it's a little bit here. We start creating community, being a community, um, and, and exploring the Dharma. So the topic uh, for today is right intention because the, the series of Dharma practice days for this year is the Eightfold Path. And uh, the Eightfold Path is the most central um, or the most common reference for the path that the Buddha offered. And uh, there are many depictions of the, medita- of the path that the, for the Buddha gave, but it's the tradition kind of coalesced around the Eightfold Path as being kind of the standard description. And it works very well as a standard description because of how um, it kind of all-encompassing it is. It encompasses so many different areas of our life. Some of the other path descriptions the Buddha gave um, are in some ways a little bit narrower in focus and uh, focus a little bit more on the kind of the narrower path of meditation, whereas uh, this includes um, uh, our, uh, a big part of it is our social world, how we relate to other people, our relationship to others. And in fact, I think it's meaningful to consider to, that uh, of the eight steps of the Eightfold Path, half of them concern our relationship to the world of others, uh, indicating how important that world is. And this begins with the, the topic of today, which is the second step of the Eightfold Path, right intention, which is primarily described in, in terms of our relationship to other people. That, uh, so I think that's quite significant, that, if, that the part of the training in Buddhism is a training in establishing healthy relationships to the world around us. And then the next three steps for the next three months 
right uh, speech, right action, and right livelihood, uh, uh, for the most part, have to do with your relationship to other people. I mean, I suppose uh, you, some people like to include how you speak to yourself and how you uh, treat yourself as important parts of the step, which I think for some people is very significant because some people talk to themselves in much more painful ways than they would ever dream of talking to anybody else. So sometimes it's the whole teachings around right speech. Uh, some individuals find it meaningful to look at their own inner talk and those, uh, those, uh, along those guidelines. But these four, right, um, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, um, are primarily focused on establishing a healthy and uh, relationship to the people around us. And not in a moralistic way that you know, thou shalt be ethical in your behavior, but uh, because the overall framework for the Eightfold Path, the overall purpose of it, is a path of liberation. And, uh, and, and perhaps it's very hard to become liberated if you don't have healthy relationships, you don't have those established as a strong foundation for, the, for what's going on. There's no shortage of people who um, have trouble in their social world dealing with or because they grew up in a very strong individualistic culture and um, they think that they don't need to relate to other people so much. And so when they come to Buddhism, uh, they take a very individualistic route and um, you know, try to bypass uh, people because people are just complicated. <laughs> Messy for some of us, <laughs> Victor says. The um, so, um, but in fact, it's, you know, it's a very important part of the overall path of practice, and so we'll explore that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And today, the topic is right. In, usually, translated as right intention. The word is uh, 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 first intention is uh, sankapa, and um, other translators choose to translate it differently. Um, I think a, a good uh, alternative is resolve uh, because it involves more than just kind of like wishful thinking, you know, I'm, it's my intention. But it, resolve implies a certain kind of commitment and strength. This is, this is what you resolve to do. Like, this is what you're going to try to do. This is what you're going to practice to do. Um, there's more kind of um, involvement, I think, with the idea of this is my, re- I'm resolved to do this. And I think if the purpose of the Eightfold Path is spiritual liberation, is just to be awake, uh, I hope this is not, you know, you know, the traditional understanding is this is not a casual wish, you know, like you know, you know, I'll get around to it and it'd be nice, and you know, yeah, I'll do such, I'll do some of this right intention. I know it goes in the right way, um, but the, you know, it's a pretty, pretty uh, significant uh, goal to wake up, to be free, to not be caught, to not suffer, and so to have that as a real resolve, to be settled, composed, and committed. This is what I want to do. I think it's, for some people, it's very, very meaningful. It gets them oriented, organized their life around this thing. And for some people, their, their, their life gets organized around the Eiffel Path. Their life gets organized around this purpose. And it isn't so much that, uh, the, quest, the question isn't so much, well, how do I integrate my practice into my life? The question is, how do I integrate my life into my practice? And depending on what, where the priority is. And I'm not saying it should be one way or the other, but that choice exists for people. So that, that's why some people translate it as right resolve. Um, some people translate it as right thinking. Uh, I, sometimes I like the idea of calling it right attitude because the word sankapa, uh, you know, it doesn't quite mean intention. It means more like a way of thinking or an approach. Um, 
So different ways of, of uh, referring to it. But uh, it gets defined in particular ways. In the, and so they, the, how it's defined helps us to understand what it is. And uh, wrong intention, the opposite of right intention, is uh, lust, ill will, and hostility. And uh, the difference between ill will and hostility is ill will is that, you know, you just kind of like, it would be, you know, it'd be nice if your enemy had a flat tire, you know, or, you know, you just, but hostility is like, I'm going to poke the tires, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to, you know, actually cause the harm. And um, I think that's kind of the idea. The word uh, 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 for hostility is actually himsa, which perhaps can be more, uh, better translated as harm, because, you know, some of you know the word ahimsa, nonviolence. And um, so maybe ill will is more, you know, you carry ill will for someone, but, um, but himsa is maybe more intending to cause the harm, you know, acting on it, perhaps. So it's lust, ill will, and hostility. And, um, and so then, you know, that raises the question for some people, what's these Buddhist, what, are, what are these Buddhists have a, why do these Buddhists have a problem with lust? And um, so maybe we'll look at that today as we go through it. And, um, and then the other, so then the right intention is kind of like the opposite of those three. And so um, uh, certainly the opposite of, of ill will is um, uh, goodwill. Or the, wor- the word in, in, um, in the ancient language is it's the negative of ill will, so not ill will. But the not, ill will, the negative prefix means the op- means, actually means the positive quality. And so the tradition understands it to be uh, loving-kindness, metta. And the opposite of hostility is non-hostility, ahimsa, but the tradition, again, also understands this positively as being compassion. So, and, then the, uh, and then you would think that the opposite of uh, lust is non-lust, and maybe that's what it is, but uh, there's kind of a word, it turns out in Pali, there's kind of a word play. Because the, the word for um, kamma, for lust, is kamma, like the Kama Sutra. And, the, uh, and the, uh, the word that's for this right intention, the kind of the opposite, is nekama. And uh, so it kind of has kamma at the end, but it's actually a different word. And the ne could be kind of a negative prefix. But um, uh, what it means is uh, uh, more like renunciation or relinquishment. So the uh, opposite or the contrast to lust is a certain kind of letting go, relinquishment, releasing, renunciation. And, um, and uh, so this, this idea of renunciation has an important role. Um, and so we'll talk about that, explore that, you know, what that's about. Uh, if you are willing to stay for that discussion. It's very unpopular. <laughs> Renunciation. I thought I would save that for the end of the day so you know, you could easily slip out and, and not miss the other ones that you prefer to look at, compassion and love. That's, that's fine, you know, I'll go for that. But. So, um, so that's, the, that's kind of the definition. So there's something about uh, lust, ill will, and hostility, which interfere with a path to peace and freedom. 
So again, we don't have to look at this in a moralistic terms, but more in a pragmatic, practical terms, in the consequential terms, that, uh, you know, how is it, how does it work to become peaceful uh, if you're motivated and, dri- and driven by things like lust and anger and ill will, hostility? And then what's the role of the opposite of these, of renunciation, letting go, relinquishment, uh, uh, loving kindness and compassion for this process, this path of our own freedom and liberation, our ability to become free of suffering. And I think the idea here is that the, this, the motivation and the way of living that's based on certain kind of renunciation, certain kind of loving kindness and kind of compassion is indispensable for this path of becoming free. So I asked you in this sitting to do this kind of reflection, if you could, with the jackhammer, which is um, the contrast between some, some, some reference to a reference point of peace, well-being, uh, content, safe, and uh, having um, anger or hostility. And I'm curious if some of you would be willing to say a little bit, what came up for you in that contrast? I tried to offer that contrast, with, I tried without any value judgment on whether you should or shouldn't have it or, you know, what was, that was good or bad, any of them. I just kind of tried to present them in an open way and uh, to see what would be sparked in your mind about what understanding you'd have, what insight, what relationship you might have. And so I thought it might be interesting to hear from some of you. Uh, if you had, those of you had maybe different, in a series of different kind of things came up in that reflection. So um, I've had this wonderful memory of being peaceful, and then when you said hold uh, the anger separately, and I realized I had a very difficult time doing that. I was taking the anger in, and then I was kind of playing with um, trying to make space for that and to be compassionate toward the anger. And um, and then I tried to put the anger on the outside and hold the anger's hand. I'm here for you, but... <laughs> I really want to be peaceful. But I find myself in this situation on a daily basis because I have two teenage daughters. <laughs> and I try to maintain my peace. And they're oftentimes very angry. And it's oftentimes um, kind of directed at me because, you know, that's what kids do. Um, and so I find myself having a real difficult time trying to maintain my peace um, in the face of their anger but um, trying to be responsive, trying to be there, present for it without having an effect me. And I, I must say, I don't do a very good job of it. Um, yeah, so so that's what anyone I has any advice? <laughs> so, this, so, so for you, the contrast evoked the contrast between some capacity you have to be peaceful and the anger of other people that you have to live with. And so that's certainly interesting. And... Um, and, uh, and if you hold both of them kind of an open way, you, you, your capacity to be angry and your capacity to be peaceful, just hold, hold them with two hands and look at them, uh, what's your relationship to those two? What, do you, what, do you, what happens inside of you when you kind of look at them both in front of you? Um, I, I, I could feel my peace being disturbed. I mean, it disturbed. was... It, yeah, it was... It was it was hard, although I have to say that um, I had more um, 
success with staying peaceful when I didn't try to take it in and actually work with it inside when I could actually leave it externally and I, I held my hand out to it and I stayed connected with it but I kind of created, a, you know, maintained that peace um, better that way. Great. Okay, thank you. So someone else? Ellen. Thank you. <clears throat> I had three different experiences. The first was um, I felt peace very deeply and then when you asked us to hold anger, I felt an aversion. I didn't want to take that on. And then um, I tried to hold them for a little bit longer. And I could feel the difference in the physical sensation of being at peace, which felt very loose and open physically, and the anger, which felt tight and smaller. And then the last thing that popped into my head was that in order to live in that kind of peacefulness would require a certain courage um, to overcome the general reality that one doesn't deserve that kind of peace since mm. the world is one of so much violence and, and so much trouble. Mm. So one doesn't deserve it, it's not appropriate. Uh, if, we're, if we're really connected to the world and care about it, we would s- suffer with it. We worry about it, you know. And, um, because if somehow if you're peaceful in relationship to it, then you're aloof, you're not connected, you don't really care if you're peaceful. That's the implication, right? That people, some people have. Okay. Um, regard the jackhammering and noises like that, I have considerable experience with such work. And now when I hear a noise like that, it helps me to reframe it. Simple psychological technique. Somebody's running that machine probably hasn't had much work in the last four years. For the guy on the end of that difficult thing, that's a wonderful sound. He's happy. He's going to make a payday today. Maybe the work will go on next week. There's another guy that carries all that rubble away. He's happy. That goes into a truck. The truck takes it someplace. That guy's happy. All these people are really pleased. And if I have to sit here and be mildly irritated, it's okay. I can take it. Uh So that's a beautiful example of perhaps choosing not to be stuck in the irritation, be involved in it, but to reframe it in a way that allows goodwill and uh, to be the uh, carry the day. And um, because of your formal prof- profession, you're more tuned into this. And um, but it's a, you know it's a beautiful reflection. And so the question is, you know, why why should I bother spending all this time making that reflection? You know, this is you know it's an injustice. We're a meditation center. They should know that that we're a meditation center. <laughs> they should check with us. You know and. And, you know, and why, you know, all this noise, and don't they realize it's an imposition, and they're, you know, we're finding our own peacefulness, and so you, you went to a lot of trouble. To, <laughs> you know, why should, why should I go to that kind of trouble? And, and that's the question, why should I go to that trouble to do what you just did? Well, for me, it reduces my suffering considerably. Oh, that, I, that, <laughs> you mean to have to work at reducing my suffering? 
Some of us do, Gil. Others are, <laughs> others are better at it. It feels like it's like, you know, I shouldn't have to work at this. I mean, I deserve to be enlightened just like that, you know. Good, great, great. Thank you, Steve. Uh, when I was considering a time of uh, peace, um, I was in my kitchen uh, chopping vegetables and cooking. And the difference for me between, and, and those moments, because they are too few in my life, are quite noticeable to me. Um, and in the contrast between that and, I don't know if it's more... I think I get irritated a lot more than I do get hostile or angry. Um, and the, the physical difference between the two is that when I'm in that space of feeling peaceful and calm, um, I'm, I don't know what the word for it is, but it's, uh, I'm con- everything's congruent. Uh, my attention, uh, it's all focused in the same spot. When I am feeling irritated or jangled or upset about something, my experience is I feel very fragmented. Great. That's a, so that's maybe another reason why this idea of uh, being careful with the intentions we live by, the motivations we have, the attitudes we have is very important because for the, for the further development of meditation practice, for inner life in Buddhism, it really helps to be stable and, and, uh, and congruent. Being scattered and fragmented and agitated uh, makes it really hard to go further and deeper into ourselves. And so, what what attitudes keep us scattered or keep us fragmented, agitated? What attitudes help us to settle down? And from that point of view, uh, the idea of developing renunciation, loving kindness, and compassion uh, is, in a, in a, I think, in, a, in an appropriate way, uh, self-serving. You know, it benefits us as well. And that, in the, from Buddhist point of view, it's an appropriate motivation, not the only motivation, but an appropriate motivation to do this because we see how good it is for us to do it. So, yes. Uh, first, regarding the uh, jackhammer, uh, I actually found that to be a help uh, because it was my mindfulness bell. My, uh, my mind goes off into the boonies very fast and it kept bringing me back. Um, the thoughts of peacefulness, of peaceful times, a particular instance, and also of anger, uh, I associated both of those with my relationship with one person and it sort of brings home how much I let the outside world rule my emotions. Mm. So, in seeing that so much of the outside world rules your emotions, what is your, what would be a wise intention, motivation to how to go forward from here? Basically to examine when I feel the peacefulness or the, uh, the anger to jump into myself and see what's going on there, why I'm relating to that, that particular way. Great. So, so one, 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 one healthy approach is to be, be investigate this phenomenon, what's going on with, now that you've seen it, to understand it more deeply. That's great. Thank you. Here in the front, maybe we'll do one more here, if you can pass it to the front. 
my peaceful stay. Is it on or? Yeah. Hello? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Uh, for my peaceful state, I was thinking of a time when, um, so sometimes when I'm out in nature, I, I have this kind of compulsion or sense of like wanting to feel connected, but my peaceful state was when I wasn't connected and it was okay. Mm. And, and so that was sort of, the, and then when I thought of anger, from that place, uh, the anger seemed very kind of insubstantial kind of passing but then from the place of anger what I realized was like the peaceful state was also kind of insubstantial uh-huh. like there's a kind of subtle clinging to that and so they both kind of seemed next to each other both <clears throat> kind of um, you know like impermanent or kind of not you know kind of insubstantial uh-huh. but when you suggested this idea of um, I forgot what it was what word you used but <coughs> excuse me Something like um, aligning oneself with the peaceful state. Um, it felt different than clinging to the, that subtle clinging to the peaceful state. It felt like kind of, I don't know how to describe it, kind of like it felt strong. Mm, nice. Like it was a choice. Very nice. Yeah. So in the first thing you said about, you know, that you felt more peaceful when you weren't, weren't trying to be connected to nature, you think it's something about the desire to be connected that interferes with peace? So that's one, one of the teachings, we have to be very careful about how we relate to desire and how desire, sometimes I mean, desires can be fine to have, but desires also can interfe- interfere. And so we have to get wise about desire and how they functions for us. Well, thank you. So, um, uh, so the way it's usually translated into English, uh, the first step of the, the second step of the Eightfold Path is right intention, and um, intention is considered a very important part of Buddhist spirituality. So much so that um, you know, some of you know that in kind of simple terms, that um, the early Buddhism talks about. Uh, so there is there is there, you know there's the teaching of not self is important. So. But if any, uh, sometimes I think it's, intention is so important for the tradition that if anything qualifies as a self, it's your intention. And uh, that's what we can have the most choice around. That's what we kind of organize ourselves around. We take care about. It's, ve- it's a very deep thing, you know, what, what really motivates us. Um, in some ways, it's more important than, than what we believe. Uh, one of the deepest beliefs, deep, deepest values we have is... What, what is it that we're trying to do? What are the choices we make? What are the intentions that motivate us in our lives? And I think this topic of intention uh, can touch something very tender uh, inside of us, uh, very important. And, um, and so I hope that today as we go into this, we do that with uh, some care and respect for each of us um, because of, I think it's a very important topic. Um, So what I'd like to do is to, in about five minutes, take a break. And I wonder if we can manage with this room full of people to do a very short little paired discussion where um, you turn to someone next to you and just uh, just for about a minute or so, um, uh, tell the person uh, what has come up so far for you and what we've talked about so far, this, or what's happened this, this first hour together. Um, what has it stimulated? What is this? What thoughts? What reactions? What responses? Um, what stood out for you that was kind of oh, that's kind of meaningful for me, or 
that raises some questions for me. Or so this is not a test, right? So just whatever whatever kind of comes out and um, and to share something. And uh, so it's going to be pretty brief. So maybe a minute or two. We'll take about five minutes to have it. So make sure that one person doesn't take the whole five minutes with a little thing. And then um, and then I'll ring a bell and then we can take a break. And um, and uh, if you want, you can continue the conversation if you like. Like, but I would like everyone to have a chance to kind of speak. So. So, uh, and if it's really difficult to find another person somehow easily, it's fine to form a group of three. But look around and see if you can do groups of two. So please go ahead. Okay. So, um, thank you. And uh, so uh, let's take a break, and uh, let's try, probably take about a 20-minute break, and um, we'll start again at, at, I guess, uh, 10.55, and you're welcome to continue your conversations if you'd like.